0: That's what's so uh, fascinating and arguably fascinatingly different about a case of this nature is, I think, lots of uh, complaints about the administration of the death penalty uh, center around poor-quality lawyering.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California, and I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court.
3: Bob, I know you write a couple of blogs. That's right. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Well, we'd like to thank our sponsor,
2: Clio, an online practice management software program
3: for lawyers at goclio.com. Before we get started with today's program, I would like to take a moment to extend our thanks to the new Legal Talk Network. Greg, you and I have been off the air for a couple of months uh, as the Legal Talk Network has transitioned to new management. We are very excited about the opportunity to start podcasting again and get the program going again. So thank you to everybody at the New Legal Talk Network for bringing us back. Great to be back on the air with you, Bob. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that is very much in the news right now, the criminal prosecution and potential sentencing of Jokar Zarnayev, the surviving brother implicated in the Boston Marathon bombings. The criminal trial and uh, prosecution raise many questions in the legal world. We're going to talk about some of them here today. And we've invited two guests to discuss
2: today's topic. We'd like to first welcome attorney Jack Kuna of Kuna & Holcomb, based in Boston, Massachusetts. Jack is a former instructor at Suffolk and Harvard Law Schools. As well as his practice, Jack still lectures nationally for various associations and schools, such as the National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys, Harvard Law, and CLE programs, mainly on criminal defense.
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jack.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
3: And also joining us today is a returning guest of Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Douglas Berman of the Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. Doug has taught a myriad of courses at Ohio State, including criminal law, criminal punishment and sentencing, and the death penalty. He's co-author of a casebook, Sentencing Law and Policy, Cases, Statutes, and Guidelines. He's also the co-managing editor of the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law, and, of course, he writes the very popular blog, Sentencing Law and Policy. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Doug Berman.
0: Uh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it.
3: Well, we're very happy to have you back. I, uh, Jack, I, I wondered if, if I could kind of start with you. You're, you're uh, there in Boston where all of this is taking place. You're an experienced criminal defense attorney there. Uh, what, what is the biggest challenge the defense Faces in this case, what are the difficulties they face?
4: Well, I think they they start off uh, with the fact that there's been so much publicity, um, there's been so much dissemination of what the um, the evidence is, uh, how uh, accurate that is. In terms of, of um, uh, you know whether or not uh, a jury might take a different view uh, is difficult to know. But it's you know they're starting off from it, it's a very emotional topic, obviously. Uh, People in this community uh, were killed. Uh, The community felt under attack. And um, I think, although the the law gives the presumption of innocence uh, to the defendant, I think there's a pretty widespread sense that that this uh, kid is guilty, and that's going to be a real challenge to the defense.
2: And Jack, what do you think, uh, how strong do you think the prosecution's case is? You're a defense attorney. How do you look at it?
4: Well, I mean, you know, I, I I look at it like everybody else in terms of what you see on the uh, uh in the media. And uh you know, the pictures of the of the of the two brothers, um the uh allegation is laid out in the complaint uh that they have photographs of uh one of the you know, the second brother, the surviving brother, um uh with a backpack and then walking away uh and explosions uh without a backpack and then the explosion several uh you know, uh seconds later, basically, uh, that's pretty damning. Um, I, it sounds like they've got a pretty good case. Um, you know, the one way to look at this is, uh, uh, what is the evidence going to be? Is there going to be any question about, uh, reasonable doubt about guilt or innocence? And, uh, and if not, uh, or, if it's, or if that's weak, then the, the thrust of the defense probably is going to try to avoid the death penalty.
3: Well, Jack, you, you touched on uh, this this issue uh, that there's a lot of strong evidence here. There's video, uh, and uh, the the presumption of innocence uh, seems to be uh, almost uh, already a, a presumption of guilt. And Doug, I, I know you've written uh, on your blog uh, a couple of times already about this case, and uh, in particular about the possibility of, of the death penalty uh, in this case. Uh, and, uh, you, you've talked about, uh, those who, uh, feel that that, uh, uh, that, uh, really should be a, a strong possibility in this case. Uh, what, w- what's your view on, on how this case should play out and may play out in terms of, uh, potential sentencing?
0: Uh, well, you know, I think that, uh, those who still favor the death penalty and, uh, Polls nationwide suggest, um, you know, in general, there's still pretty broad-based support uh, for the death penalty in theory. And then when pressed, people usually say, and uh, there's, you know, recent vote even out in California, uh, seemingly a very liberal-leaning state, uh, that they at least want to preserve the death penalty for extreme cases, what often is described, you know, as the worst of the worst. And... At least in terms of the crime, and I think that's all we really know an awful lot about now. And, and you know, as, uh, again, that's that's where the guilt story is. Is the first part of that we know there was this uh, horrific crime with horrific injuries and and no obvious motive other than you know terrorism, which we rightly I think view as you know uh, on par with treason or other things that are that are crimes against the state uh, as the whole, as much if not more so than crimes against individuals. And so when we think about if we're going to define the death penalty as something we want to keep available and keep available for the worst of the worst, when we think about this crime and we think particularly not just about uh, the direct victims, but, you know, the psychological injuries that echo through, you know, all the stories that that go not just, um, you know, to the people who were there, but everybody who observed it and dealt with the uncertainty, add on top of that... Uh, the drama that surrounded uh, capturing, uh, you know, the one uh, living direct suspect, you know, I think it's easy to say the testimony should at least be on the table. Uh, Now, fascinatingly, this crime was committed in a state that if the state were to prosecute, wouldn't have the testimony on the table because Massachusetts has a long history of of not having that as an available punishment. And so one of the parts of the story and uh, an interesting one that I like to focus on is notwithstanding the citizens of Massachusetts deciding they didn't want the death penalty for crimes uh, within Massachusetts, uh, the federal uh, jurisdiction here applies, and it doesn't seem as though anybody is concerned that the feds have have come in and uh, taken over the prosecution and have already brought charges that could carry the death penalty. And there's actually an interesting contrast to what we've seen in some other settings where for far lower-profile crimes, but that technically have federal jurisdiction, there have sometimes been uh, disputes between state officials and federal officials uh, when the state doesn't have the death penalty and the feds want to take over a case and uh, bring it federally to make the death penalty available. There's a particularly notable case that uh, made it through the First Circuit out of Rhode Island where there was a a quite serious dispute over whether the feds should even be able to get custody of a prisoner in order to bring... uh, capital charges uh, for a crime committed in Rhode Island, but on federal property. Uh, here, th- those debates seem to wash away because there seems to be such a strong sense that if we're going to have the death penalty in this nation, and, and, and it seems like our democratic systems want to preserve that, uh, having it at least on the table for a, a crime of this nature is the right way to begin the debate.
4: The other, just to add something to that, if I, if I may, uh, the... Um Obviously, one of the things that that the defense has to think about here is a change of venue uh now, given the the nationwide impact uh you're not you're not going to find some place that hasn't heard about the case um but if you look at mcveigh um it, it the venue was changed there here, if the venue was changed, then there's at least um a good possibility that it could go to a state which is more pro death penalty. Uh, Than than is Massachusetts, Um, you know. Just because Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty doesn't mean that there aren't people here who don't favor it. So it's not, you know, um, it's not like that that you're not going to find sentiment for it here in Massachusetts, even though it's not a possibility uh, at the state level as a as a as a sentencing option. However, uh, you know, a change of venue might get the defense more than they want. Um, So there's going to be a real conundrum, I think, there as they determine do we want to stay here where Passions are boiling, uh, or go someplace else where, okay, passions can going to be high but less, uh, but where the possibility of the death penalty could be, could be greater.
0: Yeah, I think that's a terrific insight. And I think, you know, necessarily part of that equation uh, are factors we haven't yet uh, been fully privy to, and probably defense counsel aren't either. You know, all of the background stories. Uh, that that the media is starting to unearth about uh, these brothers and their relationship and other relationships that they had that led up to the crime. Uh, you know, indisputably, the the sense one gets, whether you know accurate or not, from the media portrayals that the the now deceased older brother uh, was was kind of the mastermind, as it were, uh, and and because he's not around anymore. At one level, that's an arguable mitigator because it would be easier to tell stories of of you know lesser culpability relatively speaking at another level, at least functionally, it may be an aggravator because he's not around to to throw the book at as it were
3: yeah how How likely are we even to get to this issue? I mean much has been made of the fact that that Judy Clark has been brought on to the defense team that she's uh has a, a track record of of getting uh notorious uh uh, uh defendants uh life sentences uh in lieu of the death penalty uh through through plea deals uh are, are we ever how likely is there to actually be a a, a trial on a sentencing uh, here
4: i would say uh uh the chances are that it w- that it will i mean the process is a is a somewhat uh extended one uh the uh, local uh United States attorney, first of all, uh, has to make a determination. They seek input from defense counsel uh, before making a recommendation to DOJ Washington uh, on whether to seek the death penalty. Um, Once a recommendation is made, um, DOJ Washington will allow the defense lawyers to go down and make a second pitch. Um, So there is a very, um, at least in theory, a thoughtful process as to whether or not they're going to seek the death penalty. Uh, However, um, uh, given the The impact on the community of the crime, I I think it's going to be surprising if they don't seek the death penalty.
0: Yeah, I would share that sense, although I would add to it, and again, this is the part that gets dynamic, is their decision to seek the death penalty initially in a formal indictment and set of charges may itself include not only an expectation, but perhaps even a desire uh, when passion's cool, uh, you know, a few months from now and this is not... Uh, daily news about both the crime and the victims, uh, at that point, a, a plea deal is is possible and put together. I mean, that's the Jared Loeffner case is a good example where, uh, partially because of concerns about mental competence, but I think also because once enough time had passed, uh, the prospect of moving forward with a full death penalty trial when guilt wasn't at issue, uh, wasn't particularly appealing to uh, a variety of folks, and so getting the the LWAP deal uh, locked down without the costs and challenges that that seeking the death penalty all the way through trial, uh, I think became an appealing prospect. And again, what kind of mitigating evidence uh, that can be marshaled now by the defense team may play a profound role, both in you know just how he gets charged and whether those charges truly evince a desire by the federal government to go all the way through with a full trial or rather just to um, reflect community sentiments now to seek the death penalty, but then you know wait until more time and more understanding uh, allows perhaps more people to to take a more balanced view about what's the best outcome. Again, assuming guilt you know doesn't become a uh, an issue in the first instance.
4: And that you know that's where the the brothers' influence may might bring to uh, be brought to bear as well. I mean, obviously, as a matter of uh, constitutional jurisprudence, uh, he's 19. So he's not within the Roper v. Simmons, uh, you know, under 18, uh, can't seek the death penalty. He's eligible. On the other hand, he is a young, a young man. Uh, he clearly, uh, at least if, if the media is to be believed, uh, was uh, influenced greatly by his older brother. Um, you know, uh, all of the, uh, scientific research on, um, on the developing brain, uh, again, it, not a matter, as a matter of constitutional jurisprudence, but as a matter of mitigation, I would think that that's all going to be brought to bear.
0: Yeah, I think that's a particularly excellent point because my sense is there have been folks who, you know, though very pleased when the Supreme Court took the death penalty categorically off the table for constitutional purposes, setting the line at age 18, have long viewed um, the opportunity to. Uh, get the right kind of case to talk about the brain science evidence that suggests uh, you know, full maturity, at least from a neuropsychological point of view, may not uh, kick in until 25. And obviously the nature of the crime here is, is so heinous, this is not kind of a, a signature poster child case, but combine his relatively young age, only 19, with particularly all the different evidence uh, suggesting that he was a pretty well adjusted and and likable uh, kid during his development, and that there may have been you know significant influence just you know towards the tail end uh, of his time before committing this crime, that would seem to set up as a uh, kind of a uh, perfect scenario for allowing uh, maybe you might even say requiring the defense team to want to bring forward this brain science research in an effort were there a full trial. Uh, to seek the death penalty and and um you know it, it, candidly as an academic, I think it would be fascinating to watch that play out uh but i I suspect the litigators involved uh would not necessarily see that with the same kind of um excitement given the uncertainty that it necessarily creates and and that may be itself one of the things that would uh drive the prosecutors to be a little bit more comfortable with the plea deal that they might fear uh that a really effective record concerning the brain science evidence could perhaps lead a court, particularly a Massachusetts court, um, you know to, to think about extending roper uh, in a situation like this. I doubt that's going to happen, but I do think that's something that at least the defense team uh, can talk about as they, as they prepare for you know, the trial for life, as some, some capital defendants describe, gearing up for a for a sentencing phase.
2: Doug, we need to take a moment here and take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor.
1: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes, and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Cleo, feel free to visit www.goCleo.com. That's G O C L I O.com. And
2: welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co host, Bob Ambrosi. We've been talking with attorney Jack Kuna and Professor Douglas Berman about the criminal trial proceedings in the marathon bomber suspect, Dakar Sarnev. And we talked briefly about these two men as brothers and they're, you say that they were kind of well-adjusted, uh, apparently children, but we have seen their parents and I can't really decide whether it's high drama or high comedy. It just is bizarre. Uh, Jack, what's your impression of, of the parents? Do you think they're going to play any role in this case? Will they be staying in Russia? Will they be coming to the United States?
4: Oh, I think that their, uh, participation in this case is going to be, um, at best, minimal. Um, you know it's it's a it's it's really sad from my perspective quite frankly to see the uh this the, sort of the knee jerk response that you know my kid couldn't have done as he must have been set up and i and i'm not saying that that you know it, it, that that in in the world uh that doesn't happen on occasion but it, it in this instance it's it seems uh so um ill considered on their part um to uh to, to 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 do that, mom is actually um, it's not as serious, but there's a warrant out for her uh, on a shoplifting case, so um, that's not a jailable offense in Massachusetts. So it's not uh, you know it wouldn't cause her great legal problems. But on the other hand, you know that that's that's she's, there's going to be publicity about that if she comes back. Um, Dad seems to have his health problems. Um, no, I I think that I think this kid is is on his own, and and uh, uh, you know. How that plays out for him, you know, uh, well or ill, is, is is a little bit hard to to uh, determine. But one of the things, also, and again, this is, uh, you know, all this the the adolescent brain development and, and the family circumstances. That's all Judy Clark's uh, in in her bailiwick. Um, but uh, it would seem. That one of the factors here is that he was alone. The only person he had who was, who was, uh, you know, seemingly in some position to uh, nurture him was his 26-year-old brother, and we know how that turned out. So I think that that's that's a factor here in terms of how the case will play out. Um, maybe, as uh, Professor Berman has suggested, in terms of whether a, a plea can be worked out, but also if not, uh, in terms of uh, disposition. Um, let me just say this too, and it's not on topic, but. I know these, the lawyers who represent him, and they are terrific. Um, this is, these are, are very uh, talented, dedicated uh, lawyers, uh, and I can guarantee your listeners that um, he is going to receive uh, a zealous uh, defense by talented uh, lawyers.
3: That's Miriam. Miriam Conrad is the chief public defender in that case. Uh, and then, of course, Judy Clark brought in as well.
0: I would, I would sec, I would second those sentiments, and in fact, again, that's that's what's so uh, fascinating and arguably fascinatingly different about a case of this nature is, I think, lots of uh, complaints about the administration of the death penalty uh, center around poor quality lawyering that that often happens with appointed counsel in in state cases, or um, you know, that that don't have a basis for being confident that it's going to be the best of the best helping to represent the worst of the worst. And in this case, um, you know, uh, I too do both uh, the defenders involved and they are not just first rate, but my sense is, and to get back to the parents' question, you know, they'll not only understand the challenges that they would have in in using the parents um, as a potential mitigating uh, resource here in trying to figure out how to best represent their client, but they likely could uh, effectively... (laughs) help give the prosecution reason to worry uh, about the, this kind of uh, unusual parents' wild card nature. Uh, by that, I mean both they seem unpredictable in a variety of kinds of ways and um, uh, sort of along the lines that Jack suggested, they seem to be the type that would make it, if not easy, at least possible uh, to try to shift some kind of moral blame uh, the defense to, you know, his upbreaking or the abandonment or however else you might want to describe uh, their quirkiness and the the quirky experiences that, uh, uh, you know, both the brothers had in their development and and ultimate uh, situation in the United States, and especially because... It seems as though the only reasonable options that are even out there for sentencing, assuming, you know, guilt is not an issue, will be either the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole. You know, anything that that is unpredictable uh, necessarily can be used to the defense's benefit, because uh, with those options being the only ones there, part of their negotiating tactic will be to say, you know, look, government, you can't have any confidence about how this case is going to play out. And the more you dig into it, the more uh, uh, unpleasantnesses we're going to find about persons other than this particular defendant. And that's reason alone to be willing to make a deal with him, to be willing to, to have him be locked up um, forever and, and essentially forgotten, uh, rather than to continue to make a spectacle of this by, by having a drawn out and itself inevitably uncertain a death penalty trial.
2: Let's take a Let's take a quick look at the civil side of this case and see if there's any kind of remedies that the individuals who've been injured and killed have. I mean, it's going to be, to me, seems kind of obvious that these t- the, the brothers, neither one of them are going to have any kind of insurance coverage. There doesn't seem to be any type of, of other actor here beside them. Does that leave all of the people that are injured just out of luck?
4: Well, you know, there are uh, funds that have been established and uh, that appears to be uh and and people have been very generous uh, uh so far and I think they'll continue to be very generous um other than special legislation that's that's it i mean the, there's i don't think you're going to find um uh, uh, negligence uh on the uh that could be provable against the city in terms of security um, i want to pick up on that, that just
0: staying on the criminal side a little bit i want to
4: actually pick up on the special legislation point
0: because uh, Little known, but but worthy of of I think some rumination in this context is um, a couple of years ago Congress passed and uh, was signed into law by President Bush the Crime Victims Rights Act which actually provides a set of a very defined and independently enforceable rights for crime victims in federal court and one of the reasons that I've been thinking a lot about that is let's assume and I don't think it's uh, too early to assume that that uh, the defenders here are working toward figuring out how to make the best possible pitch for a plea deal. Under the Crime Victims Rights Act, uh, my read is that the, the prosecutors would have an obligation to consult in some way with the prosecutors uh, with the with the victims uh, before fully accepting uh, the uh, possibility of a plea to take the death penalty off the table. And one of the things I've already ruminated on is okay, well, obviously. Uh, The family members of the uh, killed persons, uh, the physically injured individuals are all within, obviously, the the class of victims that prosecutors may have an obligation to consult with. But um, the language of the Crime Victims' Rights Act is so broad uh, that there are arguably hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of persons who could reasonably claim to have rights. Uh, under the Crime Victims' Rights Act because of this crime, and you know, whether and how, A, uh, prosecutors will deal with those challenges because uh, they have their own obligations to consult with victims, uh, but B, whether there will be certain sets of victims who will be distinctly aggressive on both sides of the equation. But you know, the, My sense is, and this is usually true in other settings as well, when you have mass situations, and this was true in the Oklahoma City bombing, for example, there'll be some sets of victims who are very vocal in urging uh, a full death penalty trial and a death sentence, there'll be other victims who will be just as urgent and vocal in saying uh, we'd, we'd prefer life without parole. Uh, and so whether and how those factors um, may come in, and again, the key is there is this special legislation that says not it's a good idea to think about what victims want, but actually that require uh, the prosecutors and ultimately the court handling this case to to make sure that the Right of victims to participate in the process uh is respected throughout
3: well and that's jack, be- jack real quick. I just want to ask yeah. that we're we're getting low on time, but we've heard a lot about this Miranda issue in this case if this goes to trial is is that going to be an issue the uh the delay uh in in reading uh any of his Miranda rights
4: well sure <laughs> i mean they'd have to, the defense would have to uh would have to raise it um uh it, is it justified? Um, obviously, the again the Supreme Court has said that there is an exception. Um, it's a narrow, it's a narrow exception uh, based upon what the authorities knew. Uh, did it, was it applicable here? If it was, was it, how long was it applicable? Um, those those matters are all going to be litigated, and and again that that's where you've got you know Miriam Conrad as the chief. Uh, uh, Tim Watkins, uh, uh, also on the team, and Bill Fick, they're all three of them are, are terrific warriors. Um, th- there won't be a stone unturned, and, and that is a big stone that I'm sure con- they'll, they'll be working on.
2: Is there really any type of uh, Miranda <laughs> ex- left? Isn't the exceptions to it swallow the hole?
4: Well, in a case like this, one wonders.
2: And and we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get our fu- get final thoughts from both of you. So Jack, we'll turn the mic over to you to get your final thoughts.
4: You know what I would say is, I think we, all of us, myself included, are, are, are really have rushed to judgment here in terms of the facts on guilt or innocence. And uh, as much as I think that that will probably be uh, brought to bear, we we've got to remember we don't really know what the facts are um i i've had the experience of, of uh having a highly public case uh cases where the assumption was that uh guilt was uh you know uh was of course going to be uh, found and in and in fact after a trial it was not so i think that we also have to try to keep our 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 uh, our hearts and minds open uh the hearts will be a little harder but our minds open to wait and see what the evidence is
2: and Jack, if our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you?
4: Probably the best way is to uh, phone 617 523 4300.
2: Great. Thank you very much. And Doug, your final thoughts and contact information?
4: Sure. Uh, I sort of share Jack's
0: instincts about um, keeping our, our minds open as we get more information, and particularly to have. Uh, trust in our court processes. One of the things that I I think I've been pleased to to see develop, even as there's been a, a a set of frenzies here, is a tamping down of the suggestion that we couldn't trust our traditional criminal court system uh, to handle this, and that we needed some kind of you know military court or special court uh, institution. Not only do I have incredible faith in our uh, Standard criminal justice processes, but they have a tendency to be more open and deliberate and subject to the kinds of rules that we all learn about and I think take pride in as making our system of criminal procedure uh, a a shining star you know throughout the world and so for that reason, again, you know trusting the process and in particular, even if guilt or when guilt gets established one way or another, uh, understanding that the sentencing process uh, is itself unique and requires often some even more fine grained uh, assessments and judgment uh, not just about you know is somebody guilty but but how guilty and 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 what mitigating factors are there and how do different competing aggravating and mitigating factors uh, uh, balance out each other and and one of the things that's I think great about our death penalty system, whatever else you think about it is uh, we we rely on our jury system uh, to make those recommendations because we recognize that that that's itself another hallmark of of a due process that we take long standing constitutional pride in and, and uh, I will be blogging about these issues uh, not quite nonstop but a lot because it's cases like this that that I think focus the mind and focus the attention on uh different dimensions of how the death penalty works and you know whether we have affinity for that or not. Um, my blog is Sentencing Law and Policy. Uh, if you type that in, and Google that is easier than the actual address is sentencing.typepad.com. And through that, there's a link to my uh, best email, but I can give it out here. It's sentencinglaw, all one word, at gmail.com. And that's what I am most regularly going to access, and uh, I very much welcome uh, any listeners sending me materials, information, questions, uh, because, you know, uh, I think, the more people understand how our processes work here, the more confident they will be on whatever resolution we get at the end.
2: Great. Well, thank you both very much for being on the show. Ed, we really appreciate having uh, Jack Kuna of Kuna Holcomb and and Douglas Berman of the Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. But Bob, before we close out, um, let's get
3: your final thoughts about this. Uh, Well, I I think my final thoughts are uh, we have a lot Yet to see I think there're going to continue to be a lot of developments uh in this case the good chance there could be more federal charges filed in this case. there could as well be state charges filed in this case for the uh murder of the mit security officer for the uh kidnapping uh of the uh the car carjacking and kidnapping uh charges uh and even today there were uh, as we're recording this there were announcements of three more arrests related to this case. So uh, I think stay tuned for further developments. How about you, Craig? What, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I think that this has been, uh, so far, a trial by media. Uh, you know, with the advent of security cameras all over the place and with uh, news coverage that seems to be nonstop, uh, I, I think Jack's correct. We've, we have to really keep our, our minds and our hearts open because we've been pretty much tainted by what's been happening and what we've seen which makes it difficult to reach a conclusion other than uh, these two boys are guilty of the crimes that they've been charged with. Uh, well, the one that's alive. But I, I think that it's a difficult, uh, it's most difficult for the people in Boston. Uh, Bob, you know I, I was born in Worcester and it, and it holds a dear place in my heart and many of my friends have been affected by this and my heart goes out to the entire city and I, I think that... Um, you know, hopefully we can close this chapter quickly and, and uh, come up with some ways to prevent this from happening in the future.
3: That sounds good. Well,
2: that uh, brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. We're glad to have you on the show, Bob.
3: And I'm Bob Ambroji. Uh, thanks to both of our guests for taking the time to be with us. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Once again. And join us next time for another
2: great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll be back soon.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.